0: Team Rolling the Minority. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com, and Jeremy's work, of course, appears at HoustonChronicle.com and ExpressNews.com down in San Antonio. Right off the bat, I have to apologize to the audience, Jeremy, because we did not have a show last week, and I want to explain that because I got some messages that weren't, I wouldn't say they were. Hate mail or anything like that, but very disappointed people. So, uh, and and the reason I'm explaining this, and you know that my philosophy is usually to never apologize and never explain, but I'm I'm doing it in this instance for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, one of the problems we were having last week is that my voice was leaving me, and uh, this is because of an oak pollen allergy, which by Monday or Tuesday it was so bad I. I just had no voice at all. Um, I had to uh, meet some folks for a dinner meeting the other day and I said, it was beautiful outside, but I said, my only request is that we sit inside, which was probably, <laughs> <Good> <laughs> which, was probably which was probably disappointing to them, but I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. Um, I'm bringing that up because I'm not sure if my voice is going to last the entire hour here or so that the podcast uh, usually goes, something like that. Uh, so people might not get the usual amount of my knowledge and wisdom. And for that, I apologize. But what it means is they'll get more of yours because you're going to have to talk more. I and will totally
1: some... fill in the blanks. All right? Thank I'm you. ready to go.
0: At some points, I'll be preserving my voice by almost whispering during the program. That, that leaves it on you, dear listener, to listen harder. The other thing, we had a scheduling issue with Brandon, our producer. Which is fine; it happens. Um, And Jeremy was basically off last week. Give the man a break. If it was any, if it was any, one, you know, one or two of those things that were the problem, we would have done a show anyway. We would power through. But all three of those, it wasn't going to happen. So let's get right into it. The DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion story has really exploded at the Capitol in a way that I think we predicted here on the program. Our listeners are always two, three, four. In in fact. They might even be 14 steps ahead of everybody else just because they listened. Jeremy, there were a couple of developments about this. I want to start with this one. And this was nasty. And I don't think I've seen this level of nastiness in the budget writing process at the Capitol at the committee level in a while. Usually when the budget blows up and it's a big nasty fight, that's on the floor of the House in general. But the Texas House Appropriations Committee voted to defund, essentially, these DEI programs at colleges and universities in Texas, which goes right to the kind of coverage that you've been offering at HoustonChronicle.com. The vote was 16 to 10 to adopt a provision that would prohibit uh, tax dollars from being spent on those programs. Now, among those voting to defund the DEI programs is Steve Toth. He's a representative from the Woodlands. He's been described as very conservative. He says that, look, these programs Put too, And this is sort of through the looking glass as you listen to it. Um, he says these programs put too much focus on the color of our skin. And he starts out by
2: explaining what melanin is. The Cleveland Clinic states melanin is a substance in our body that produces hair, eye, and skin pigmentation. The more melanin you produce, the darker your eyes, hair, and skin. All of us, every one of us. Has melanin in our body. The amount of melanin in your body depends on a few different factors, including genetics, how much sun exposure in your ancestor, ancestral population, or, uh, population had. Our concern is that DEI focuses on melanin or how we look instead of the incredible gifts that are Democrat and Republican members of this committee have. It's those gifts that brought them to serve the people in the state of Texas, not a DEI program. We are guilty of so many sins from our past that we've overcome. I I do not want to see us go back to what brought us to those problems in the first place, which was a focus on on that which does not make us unique. What makes us really unique is the gifts and the talents that we bring. And one of the Latino members of the committee, uh,
0: a senior member of the Appropriations Committee, uh, Representative Armando Wally, a Houston Democrat, uh, talked a lot about something that we've discussed here on the program, Jeremy, which is when you're at the Capitol and you look at the pictures that are on the walls of former legislators going back for decades. If you start at the very beginning of the Texas legislature many, many years ago – it's all white faces, right? And it takes a long time. If you if you look at uh, you know in the of the grand scheme of it, it takes a long time to get to where there are any black and brown faces. When there are black and brown faces, at first it's only one or two. At some point, we have a much more diverse legislature. Um, but Wally was talking about the fact that in all aspects of life, whether it's in the legislature or in our colleges and universities different businesses, different programs that kids uh, may, uh, you know, get involved with. Uh, It takes a long time, uh, you know, throughout history to get to the point where the kids start to see people who look like them, if they're minorities, it it takes a long time for there to be black and brown faces in positions of power and leadership positions. He talked about the fact that that kind of thing does not just happen
3: on its own. It took the Civil Rights Act. It took the Voting Rights Act. It took a lot of struggle from a lot of people to allow somebody like me who came from nothing. Who came from nothing. My mama had me when she was 16 years (coughs) old. My daddy was from Mexico. And he was 17 or 18. We did not live an affluent lifestyle. But only in this country, only in this country and in this state could somebody like me rise to the levels of helping craft a $260 billion budget and the eighth, ninth largest economy. Only in this country can that happen. And so it hurts me when we have these divisive um, writers, amendments, and bills, because all that does is so doubt, it sows doubt into my sons and many children that have diverse backgrounds that want, they can't be who they can't see. Jeremy, earlier in the year, we had
0: talked about the idea that maybe the governor, by issuing a letter from his office, it was written by his chief of staff, uh, that maybe there was some threat that universities uh, and colleges around the state would lose funding over this DEI and I'm putting controversy in quotes. It's interesting that so many people are so mad about this that so they probably never heard about it before three months ago uh but now now they're all worked up um and there was some speculation about whether the appropriations process the you know the process of spending money on our universities and and all of state government whether that would be used as leverage in this d e i fight and in the meantime, as you reported, the universities have tried to move in the direction of the governor. Maybe they haven't gotten all the way where to where he wants them to be. But Jeremy, there's no question that's already happening, even though they're moving in the direction of the governor, as you reported.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you see the pressure that this is put in, in being put on the all the universities in Texas. You know, this was uh, obviously c- completely aimed at them. And now they're all trying to figure out how do we commit to or remain committed to our goals to be more diverse on our campuses uh, and yet still pull back on DEI enough to appease and placate, you know, Republican leadership, you know, in both the Texas legislature and in the governor's office. Right. How do you work walk that line? You know, I have a story out right now that really kind of explores this difficulty. These guys are, you know, the, all these you know, college presidents uh, are, are dealing with. I spoke with uh, University of Texas Austin president and the chancellor of the Texas A&M Uh, system, you know, exclusively this week, uh, to, to kind of get into like, how do they do this? How do they kind of manage this? And like, and it's, it's important for us to kind of take one quick step back for all the people who are just like going, what the hell is this DEI stuff? And so just a quick, you know, summary on this stuff. Uh, it's like, you know, this is an outgrowth of, you know, obviously the entire civil rights movement, you know, you're Mm -hmm. not supposed to discriminate against, you know, anybody in your hiring practices. But one of the things that started to happen, you know, well, well, uh, is that people start kind of looking around particularly at college campuses and saying despite these claims that we're not going to discriminate against anybody everyone we're looking at here is white it's mm-hmm. like it's all white male professors like basically dominating universities and colleges and so Particularly universities and a lot in the corporate world too have started to adopt these programs to try to break down these barriers that people are maybe not intentionally trying to put there. You know, it's like I'm not saying University of Texas was intentionally trying to hire only white people to be professors, but that was the outcome. And it may Mm -hmm. have a lot to do with the people doing the hiring were looking at white faces and feeling more comfortable with them than with black people who may have been more qualified that, for that job, but they wanted to go with the good fit, whatever the good fit would mean in mm-hmm. a certain period. So DEI really in the last five years takes off, right? And to kind of start trying to address this stuff. And, and so – and why are the universities doing this? And if you follow me on Twitter, you, you you already saw some of this stuff. And if you if you're not following me on Twitter, why not? But, but what's up but, with that? Yeah. More more importantly, though. So like so, our our state it's population. It's at
0: Jeremy S. Wallace. You gotta get you gotta get there. Of you, you, help him catch up to me on that.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. So so forty percent of our population, or more than forty percent of our population in Texas, is Hispanic, right? You you want to guess how many professors at the University of Texas? Are actually Hispanic.
0: Oh, let me guess. It's got to be.
1: I don't know. Twenty percent. Ten percent. Really? And that's rounding up. And that's after DEI has been used to try to fix the number, which is so embarrassing from ten years ago that you would just fall off your chair if you saw how bad the numbers were. For, yeah. And 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 before. Uh, and what about black? You know, professors, black faculty members. Mm. How do you think we're Let me doing guess. there? guess.
0: Uh, I'm thinking about the overall population. Um, so it's probably not as you know, it's probably not as big as that. But I don't know, maybe eight percent.
1: They're almost up to five percent. Wow, at the university after tremendous efforts on DEI, mind you, as like and right. and the numbers at Texas A and M University sound like they're they're misprints. I'll tell you. So like at Texas A and M, there's only five percent of the entire faculty. Uh, is Hispanic. Five percent. Again, in the state with more than 40 percent of the population uh, being Hispanic, 13 of the state population, 13 percent of the state population is black Uh, Mm -hmm. And yet they represent 3.4 percent of the faculty at Texas A&M. There is a good chance if you are uh, a a black student from, you know, Houston and you're going to Texas A&M, you could spend five years trying to get your degree and never see a black professor in the front of your classroom. Which is unbelievable to me in 2023. If you told me that in, in 1973, I totally would get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I totally understand. But this is 2023, and we still these numbers are really low. So this is why all these universities went to DEI. They went to this, you know, uh, uh, with a lot of student pressure on them to try to fix these numbers. And so they're trying to do it. And so this DEI fight, though, now you have the conservative talk radio people going oh this is a quota system you're focused on race you know to, it's like well yeah race in that like we didn't hire anybody who was hispanic or black for most of the last 25 years <laughs> but you know that's not how the, the thing is framed now they see it as a threat to keeping some people from getting jobs mm-hmm. uh, but i can tell you it just looking at the numbers nobody at texas a&m is passing over you know, black candidates for white people at this
0: point. So 80, pretty clear. yeah, I mean, yeah, white people are not getting the short end of the stick here. Uh, and it's almost as if some of these policymakers are arguing that 85 or 90% of the faculty being white is not sufficient. Yeah, but you, yeah. uh, based on the numbers that you just laid out, uh, it's like all these white people are being, the press somehow.
1: No, and, and, and to be fair to the governor, and 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 there is some Republican thought out there that where they're they're concerned about. Look, some of these DEI programs have gone too far. Some of them went off chart. You know, it's like, and what they mean by that is like, so we, we know I've written about this, you know, quite a bit. But at Texas Tech University, uh, the they had asked you know biology professors to put in a letter of DEI mm-hmm. that would be part of their their review process to see whether they got the job or not. And so they were using those statements to maybe knock somebody out. If they didn't say the right words, you could actually be passed over for a job in the biology department. Mm-hmm. On this, they rescinded that and kind of went backwards. You know, like all the other universities are starting to try to do that. They're trying to step this stuff back again, based off the concern from the governor and these Republicans. Again, some of it might be well founded, but it's not the pervasive issue, you know, that we had ever. You know, think of it like the. the the election fraud stuff right you know mm-hmm. as it said during that you know during the whole 2000 and you know 20 post-election stuff you know is there occasional fraud somewhere you can point to yeah there's like a guy in wood county who did something and we can point to it but is it widespread Maybe not. Right.
0: Well, there's a reason that you're bringing up Wood County, because there there was one example uh, from uh, Senator Brian Hughes's Senate district that he kept pointing to as the example for why we need to be cracking down on illegal voting all over the state. And my thought is, well, if, if it's so bad, why can't you come up with any other examples? It's the same thing when we talk about these issues surrounding transgender people. Have you noticed, and this is not to downplay their stories, but Anytime you listen to testimony about this stuff, it's always the same exact people talking over and over again uh, on both sides of the issue, by the way, uh, because it affects almost no one, but it is something that Republicans have used uh, as an effective political messaging tool, which brings me to this question. Why are Republicans so amped up about this? You've mentioned this before, but I'd like you to repeat it. This, in a lot of ways, started the nexus of this anger or the, the genesis, rather, of this anger. There's like a sort of a Florida-Texas nexus now. (laughs) Um, The the genesis, though, was really in Florida with uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor, they're getting amped up about it and moving against DEI programs there.
1: Yeah, exactly. This is a short window we're talking about. In January, Ron DeSantis went all out on DEI and purged it from New College of Florida in Sarasota, wiped out their board, cleared out their president, you know, all with the directive to end DEI, which is barely being practiced at New College of Florida, which is a really small college ultimately in the end. But so, you know, that happens in January. What happens at the end of the January? Greg Abbott you know gets his letter ready and sends it off. You know in the interim while that is all happening, you know DEI and what Ron DeSantis is doing is on Tucker Carlson on Fox News almost every night. You know it's like you know they were hitting that pretty regularly. And so here we are now today, you know, you know the governor puts out these letters warning colleges, you know, be careful what you're doing. A bunch of the colleges and universities said, okay, we're going to pull back. We're going to pause things. You know, Now universities are trying to figure out, oh, how do we then do these things we were trying to do to fix those numbers I was just telling you about? And so they're all trying to kind of figure out where they're going. But you can see the Democrats who are trying to protect DEI are just greatly outnumbered. And so yeah. what you saw in that committee hearing this week was that the Democrats don't have much power to stop anything. And so Republicans just can put a rider in there that says, "Okay, we're going to x out all money to, you know, wherever you're going, uh, you know, to any DEI program at University of Texas or any place else." And there's just not a lot the Democrats can do to slow that thing right. down. In fact, there was a press conference earlier this week and I don't mean to call him out, but Senator Royce West, you know, ends up saying something to the effect of, "Well, we're not going to sit idly by. We're going to make sure you know, they get a talking to and have to Mm -hmm. listen to us. That's pretty much all they can do. They can, they can raise their concern and, you know, fight them, but they just don't have the votes to stop anything on the budget, uh, at this point. And so they're going to need a lot more help. They're going to need like, you know, if there's going to be any sort of response on the campuses, uh, that would probably be something. But right now, uh, they could not stop this rider from getting into the discussion. And now this is going to be part of the negotiation, for the next 70 days, we're at the halfway mark of the legislature, and now this thing is live, and it's concrete, and universities are going to lose money to do DEI programs and to do diversity outreach.
0: Well, it was interesting to listen to the white Republican members say to the uh, minority Democrats who were uh, African American and Latino. Uh, the Republicans told them that, that they were very well-spoken. And that they appreciated the way in which they uh, represent the areas that they represent. Uh, And then they went on to vote against them um, 16 to 10. A lot of times when someone is acting in a discriminatory way, they do it with a smile and they're very polite. That has been the history in the South, in Texas and all across the deep South as well. Um, In the Texas Senate, let me stay with the theme. In the Texas Senate, there was a slew of bills. That was a slew—a good word for bills. It was a, I was, was just heap. wondering,
1: uh, what a slew? What uh, what number is that? Is that like a hundred or is that fifty? <laughs> What's a slew?
0: There was a heap of bills. There were a bunch of bills.
1: <laughs> a plethora, so, you would say. There
0: were a, there there were there was they there there was a plethora of bills. There was let me say this: there was a whole bunch of them that had to do with transgender folks. And the main one, sort of the big uh, mothership of these bills this time around, actually there's probably two of them. One of them is uh, Senate Bill 14, which would ban gender affirming care for minors. This is what some conservatives have talked about as mutilation of children when a child transitions from one sex to the other, one gender to the other. And the other big one, I guess, would be the one that has to do with college athletes, which we have talked about here, uh, banning transgender college athletes, uh, and that's making its way through the process as well in the Senate. Now, this drew some heated testimony, and it went on for hours and hours. I think they were done around 10 o'clock last night, which I listened to almost all of that. Dr. Steve Hotze, who has been a former business partner of Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, uh, Dr. Hotze. Is he? He has a company called Hoze Health and Wellness in Houston. Uh, the irony of it all is that uh, the thing he specializes in is hormone treatments for women. Dr. Hoze has a long history. He started out here in Austin, I think, back in the seventies. The the thing that first got him upset uh, and and really on the warpath about uh, the homosexuals in the state, Jeremy, was that Austin was. If not the first, it was one of the first to pass an ordinance that said that uh, landlords could not discriminate against homosexual people when renting apartments or renting property. And Dr. Hotsey tried to get that overturned through uh, a petition drive here in Austin. Some of the folks here in Austin say that they drove him out of Austin and he went to Houston. He's been there ever since. And he would rail about the lesbian mayor of Houston when it was Anise Parker. He has stood, it would be it'd be something that should be in a book uh, or a movie. He he has stood on a stage and pulled a sword from a scabbard and said (laughs) during an event, I was there. (laughs) He pulled this. You can't make this stuff up. He pulled a sword from a scabbard and said that we needed to drive the homosexuals out of our city. It drive them to San Francisco. This is who, Dan Patrick's done business with in the past. One of his uh, big advertisers on his, on Dan Patrick's radio station in, in Houston. So Dr. Hotsey testified uh, in a way that was kind of unbelievable, but only if you don't know anything about Dr. Hotsey.
4: Jesus said, What causes anyone that causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin? It would be better to put a millstone around your neck and throw yourself in the sea and drown. God created two genders. Two sexes, male and female. They're stallions, they're mares, they're bulls, they're heifers, they're roosters, and they're hens, they're men and they're women. This is just a biological fact. Anybody knows that. The idea that a man can claim to be a woman or vice versa is absurd and unscientific. It's a perversion of the God given natural order. At birth, you're either female XX or male XY. You can't change your sex chromosomes. This is biology 101. To see anything else is a lie. God says in Isaiah, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who justify the wicked. Senators, you have, you should lead the way in defending children from these perverted transgender pedophile movement. You have a serious responsibility before God to protect children, and I'm confident that you will discharge your duty.
0: Senator Jose Menendez, who is a Democrat from San Antonio who serves on the Senate State Affairs Committee, which, again, met all night last night, just about. Um, He asked uh, another person who was testifying, uh, a transgender person who lives in Houston, Dr. Cody Miller-Pike, he asked him about what happens if you do not offer this kind of care to children who are in the midst of figuring out whether they're going to transition. And then uh, once they have made the decision to transition, he basically, you know, Menendez wanted to know what's the consequence of, of if we ban this, if, if you just can't do this kind of health care for these kids anymore.
3: What are the risks of not providing gender affirming care to children with gender dysphoria? Dead children.
1: Oh, and if I may, one point I really want to make that I didn't get to is being trans is not cool. It's not a fad. Trans children are subject to more bullying than any other group. Trans adults are subject to more violence, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, stranger violence, murder than any other group. Since transitioning myself, I have been subject to physical and verbal assaults by complete strangers on the streets. When I was a, before I realized I was trans, uh, when I was in high school, I identified as bisexual, and that entitled someone, in their opinion, to rape me. There's nothing cool about being LGBTQIA+. It's not a fad. It's not a social contagion. It is a real identity, and we deserve your protection, not your hatred.
0: Now, earlier, you heard Dr. Hotsi say that these people, uh, like the person you just heard from, are perverts and pedophiles. Senator Menendez was offended by that and took Hotsey to task. And you'll have to listen very closely here. Uh, The microphone for Dr. Hotsey, it sounded like the microphone was cut off, but you can still hear him. You just have to listen a little bit closer. This exchange gets pretty heated.
3: I get you have your feelings, but I don't think it's appropriate for you to call people you don't know whether they're pedophiles or not. Because what happened? I do know. No, sir, you don't. Because, And here's the thing that happens, Dr. Hotsi. I have... Trans friends. I have trans staff members. I have trans members of my community. And what you do when you cause them, it's very hurtful to them.
4: Well, that's, that's what they are.
3: No, sir. They are. They are not pedophiles. They are not perverts or pedophiles. Means
4: you do something out of the normal. Out of the norm. If if cutting off your penis. If taking female drugs for a man to turn yourself into a woman isn't a perversion, help me know what the word perversion means.
3: Dr. Hoetze, this is their living, their true selves, doctor. That's bullshit. That's fine. That's fine, doctor.
0: A lot of anger there. And you might be saying to yourself, and some Republican listeners might be saying, you know what, Dr. Hotze is out of the mainstream of Republican thought. He is somebody, but by the way, he was called uh, as, as early as 2007, he was called by conservative writer, Robert Novak. He was called a quote, leader in the highly conservative Christian reconstruction movement, which again, outside the uh, mainstream of conservative thought, among other things, these folks who were signatories to this Christian Reconstruction movement, the things that they believed in, uh, had to do with um, whether a wife can work outside the home; that that should not be allowed, as she should only be able to do that with her husband's uh, with her husband's consent. That biblical spanking of children results in quote temporary or specific bruises or welts should not be considered a crime. No doctor should provide medical services on the Sabbath. And all disease and disability is caused by the sin of Adam and Eve. So these are very sort of fundamentalist beliefs. So why would we care what this guy thinks if he's outside the mainstream of conservative thought? I'll offer this, that the Texas Senate is offering up legislation that he wants. He's the one there testifying in favor of this. He's the one who says that if the Senate votes for this and the House votes for this and the governor signs it, then they're doing the bidding of people who believe the things I just that I just read aloud. Right. That, that, that This is a very, um, and I think it, I hate to describe it this way, Jeremy, but it's a, it's a very, um, poignant lesson. Let me say it this way, poignant lesson in what we get in a state where only the Republican primary matters as far as elections, right? That Dr. Hotze is someone who you will hear what he said. You heard what he said and think, wow, he's crazy. But that's the kind of activist and political donor that Republicans are fearful of in their primary elections. When it comes around, think of it this way: when it comes to the November election, people who vote in that probably don't even know or care anything about this stuff. When it comes to transgender issues, but probably never even think about it, right? But this is something that's a litmus test now for Republicans in their primaries, and the people they're listening to are folks who agree with Dr. Hotze on this issue and others.
1: Yeah, you left in this situation, like, you know, I I always wonder within the Republican ranks, where are those libertarian wing Republicans, you know, the ones who used to always say, you know, like, let, you know, let people live the lives they want to live or you know need to live or however, you know, it's like, let's just focus on like, what it means, you know, to reduce government in our lives and things like that, you know, that wing that, you know, Ron Paul and his revolution, seemingly injected into the Republican Party, uh, just clearly isn't having that pull, (laughs) you know, it's definitely not having that poll in the texas senate that's for sure where like this issue just really keeps coming up you know it's a you you know this all happened last session too for you know there are people listening to this we're going like wait a minute are we on just some replay here it's like no no Mm -hmm. this is really new this is new argument about an old issue that keeps coming up in the texas senate uh year after year i feel like i covered you know 40 hearings on you know transgender issues going back to 2017 now remember the bathroom bill you know, yeah. it's like then we did it all again in twenty nineteen. Then in twenty twenty uh, one we did it. You know, here we are. We're talking about it again. It's like you would think there's a transgender person on every street corner right now threatening Republicans with something. I'm not sure what, mm-hmm. but something. It's like, but clearly this is at the top of the agenda. Now, yeah. and, and 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 you know, look, I understand that you know politics is gonna be politics, but man, I wish there was a tenth of the energy into the child protective services system, you know, into the child foster care system that we're putting into this. Like we are literally killing kids in our foster care system and we're spending all this time talking about this issue, you know, in yeah. the Texas legislature. I I would think if a kid died under my watch, my focus would be on them and not so much on something that clearly is not a mega priority right now for right. most of the 30 million Texans that are going to work today.
0: During that hearing last night, one of the people who testified is a guy uh, named Kevin Witt, I believe. And uh, he is someone who uh, transitioned uh, to female starting, this is the way I remember it, Trans- transitioned to female at, began that transition at the, at the age of 16 and later, had regrets and is now detransitioning, transitioning go, going back to mail. That's that's where this person is right now. Uh, and was pointed to, has been pointed to by some conservative Republicans as an example of someone who had regrets after trying to transition or transitioning as a young person. And they basically, Jeremy, the, some of these conservatives point to this person as, an, as, as a reason why you wouldn't want to allow young people to be able to do this. This person was... And this is to your point about how rare all this is and how this shouldn't be top of maybe top of the agenda compared to the cases of foster children sleeping in state office buildings, which we can actual concrete examples where there are lots of children who are affected, lots of children who are suffering in our state, where we brag about having a record budget surplus. And almost none of the discussion is about fixing any of that, right? When we we have the money. They could just start writing checks to fix all of that. This person was actually fired. The, the, the person detransitioning was fired by the Republican party of Texas, I think under chairman Alan West. And when he was asked why he was fired by the RPT, the answer was because he was at January 6th at the, at the riots at the Capitol. This speaks to the credibility of the witness they're putting forward to try to prove this point that this is some big problem. It's, um, it's, it's, Really unfortunate, but I here's. I I will say this: this doesn't seem to be one of the priorities of the speaker. This is not something that he's put forward and talked about a lot. He's talked about some other things having to do with, uh, you know, sexualization of children as far as curriculum in schools. The comment that he made at the beginning of the legislative session was that if his first grader came home talking about sexual identity in any way, shape, or form, that the speaker Dade Phelan would be down at that school in one minute to try to figure out why they were even talking about that. So I think if you look at the priorities of the house on on any of these sort of related issues, it sounds like they want to talk about books in libraries, which is a whole nother ball of wax. And we'll get into that as well coming up on a future show. You have the books in libraries, you have the curriculum questions, but this whole idea of the mutilation of children, it seems to be this obsession on the far right that was really championed by the people who lost, I would put it this way, these people lost the Republican primaries for the most part. The people who made this their big issues—Alan West, uh, Don Huffines, Chad Prather—a lot of candidates for the Texas House of Representatives—they were challenging incumbents, and those challengers who prioritized, you know, this this mutilation of children, quote unquote, issue—they lost, even their Republican primaries. This is so far out of the mainstream. Republican primary voters didn't vote for those people. And and to your point, this is still at the top of the list for what the lieutenant governor and his lieutenants, including Senator Brian Hughes from East Texas. This is what they're putting a whole lot of their emphasis on, Jeremy.
1: Yeah, this is clearly a big deal. You know, and I I, I don't know, it's like there's a part of me that makes me think, well, is this to avoid future primary challengers? But again, as yes. you just pointed out, those past primary challengers didn't do so well. You know, it's like Chad Prather, you know, is literally a part time comedian, you know, who travels the state doing a comedy show. It's like, I don't right. think you need to take his lead on <laughs> this topic yeah. or maybe almost any topic. You might be OK. He didn't really do anything, so it's like just let him be.
0: They didn't put a dent in him. Uh, in the governor, uh, the three people. I'm gonna. I want to emphasize this point. Three people who ran against Abbott, again, Alan West, Don Huffines and Entertainer Chad Prather. And again, I'm using Entertainer loosely.
1: Yeah, where's those all quote th- marks? <laughs> all three
0: of them. All three of them prioritized this gender, you know, genital yeah. mutilation thing. Uh, the, 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 the 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 what they call gender mod. These people yeah. have their own way of, way of talking. They call it gender mod. They all prioritized it, and the governor still beat them all three of them, and he got sixty six percent of the vote in the Republican primary. You wouldn't think they would have to think about all this stuff so much. Um, news out of Houston. There was one day this week where Houston was it as far even statewide news with the state of Texas taking over the largest school district in the great state. Um, The HISD, the Houston Independent School District, uh, will be, um, well, the the school board will be dissolved. And the Texas Education Agency, Governor Abbott's administration, will appoint new folks to oversee the school district and try to right the ship, as it were, uh, coming up in June. So the, the school year will play out, and then this will start. How did this happen? I had so many questions about this this week, and I've watched a lot of this unfold. It's kind of been a slow-rolling disaster. You might remember, and keep this in mind, it wasn't an idea from a Republican. This came from a Democrat. Harold Dutton, who's the former chairman of the education committee, public education committee in the Texas House, he pushed legislation. He wrote an amendment uh, that allowed for this because he has been upset about some of the low-performing campuses in the HISD. And I want to start the conversation by saying that I have a lot of respect for Chairman Dutton, right? That doesn't mean I agree with him about everything, as one of my friends says all the time. If we always agree, that means one of us is not thinking, right? so
1: <laughs> I like so that. so
0: yeah, so 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 here's what happened, Jeremy. Um, Dutton was elated when this announcement was made. Uh, earlier this week. He said he thought this day would never come. At an event earlier this year, he described his frustration with the Houston School Board for not doing more to fix poorly performing campuses.
5: I thought they would fix the school. But what happened was HSD did nothing. Cashmere failed more. And Wheatley, also a high school in Northeast Houston, failed even more. And so then it came to where the rubber meets the road, as my colleague says. And all of a sudden, the state was in a position to take over the school district. Now, I still think that we've got to fix these schools. um, And that is the question I think all of us face up here. How do we make school outcomes for students? How do we improve that? What do we do to improve student outcomes?
0: Now, most of the lawmakers that I've talked to about this Jeremy do agree with Dutton's underlying concern. They just don't agree and, and this is he, he is he is standing alone as a minority member of the legislature who agrees with this. Every other minority legislator says this is not the way to do it. They they have concerns about low performing schools in Houston just like they would have concerns about those schools in Dallas or San Antonio or Austin any of our Major metros where you have uh, you know some campuses that do well and other campuses that don't. I mean think about the fact that the Houston ISD, which is the seventh or eighth largest school district in the nation, it is the largest district in uh, in Texas. Um, think about the diversity of the district. there are he's talking about a couple of high schools which of course the kids who go there are important, but there are I think about fifty high schools in the Houston School District. There are roughly two hundred thousand children. 200,000 students enrolled in the Houston school district and some parts of town are wealthy. Some parts of town are underprivileged. It's a, it's a huge ethnically and economically diverse district. Did you know that despite all of that? And when I say, look, ethnically and economically diverse, do you know what kind of challenges that creates for the learning environment, for the learning experience for the students? Um, Even so, the Texas Education Agency and I know our listeners know this they rate the districts and the campuses they give them grades you know letter grades just like the kids get right the overall grade for the HISD is a B right this is not a failing district right, at, overall now that doesn't mean that chairman dutton's concerns about those campuses that doesn't mean those are not valid but the overall experience of kids in the hisd is not bad in fact in fact if you think about how big the district is that means that a lot of kids get an excellent education in the houston school district despite all of their challenges and despite the fact that per student funding statewide lags behind almost every other state in some ways you would wonder how do you do better than texas when it comes to statewide you know funding per pupil what is it pencils you know i mean what what is the thing that may, that would be that would you know that would boost our education around here in some of the places that you know maybe do a little more poorly ron reynolds is the chairman of the texas legislative black caucus he's a uh, state representative from missouri city there in the houston area and he says that all the members of his group are very disappointed uh, we're outraged. It's a dark day for
3: HISD. We're going to continue to fight and press forward with the bills that we have uh, that I'm going to join out of by Dr. Alma Allen in the House and, Dr. and Senator Kerr Alvarado in the Senate. Uh, we hope that we can get this legislation passed to change the course before June 1st uh, when a board of managers would take effect. A board of managers could come in. They're only accountable to TEA. They're not accountable to the community. There's no real accountability to the parents, to students, and other stakeholders. So we're disappointed, very disappointed.
0: Let me take this on the merits, Jeremy. So there are complaints about school performance. The schools, by any uh, demo- any measure, are doing better than when this controversy started going back about four years ago. All right, the, the, the original complaints, the original concerns voiced by Chairman Dutton – Go back a couple of legislative sessions, and he had to work for a little while to be able to create um, the the reality that we're in now, where the state is able to do this. Um, that's number one. The, the The schools are getting better. I was told that during a closed door meeting earlier this week with lawmakers from Harris County, the education commissioner Mike Morath he showed the lawmakers a bunch of charts about the Houston Independent School District, and all of the charts that the that the lawmakers were shown that every one of them revealed improvement right? And, and it was pointed out during a press conference later uh, that same day that there are more schools that might be of concern in the Dallas ISD where this is not happening at all. That, that's number one. So the schools are getting better. Number two, people were concerned about a previous school board. It's a different school board now. We've had elections since then. So the people in Houston have recognized that Chairman Dutton is right that they need to do better, so they've chosen new school board members. I think this is really important to point out, Jeremy, and I I think this was missed in a lot of the coverage. I asked this question earlier this week. You remember back in 2013, the Supreme Court made a huge milestone ruling having to do with the Voting Rights Act. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was gutted and what section 5 did was very powerful section 5 spoke to the deep seated racism in places like texas and states mostly in the south but not all in the south but mostly in the south that were required anytime there was a change in something that had to do with elections and voting that the department of justice they have a whole they had a whole you know section of career lawyers that would go through this stuff anytime there was a change that had to do with the people choosing their representatives that the department of justice would have to have a process to clear that first It's called preclearance, pretty straightforward. And we would see that in redistricting. We would see that in any of our laws that would change regarding voting. And this would happen under Republican and democratic administrations. George W. Bush was for it, right. For, for preclearance, right. When they would reauthorize some of this stuff, Bush was there, you know, with the, that was a bipartisan effort to do that. After the Supreme Court said there's no more preclearance, there's no more chance for federal intervention. Did you know that when the El Paso School District back in 2012 was taken over by the state that the Department of Justice had to come in and say, okay, for the board members that the state is now going to appoint, they would take a look at it and make sure that representation of the area was adequate. None of that will happen now with the Houston School District. Uh, That concerns me a lot. Uh, but it is just the reality. I mean, I was talking to some lawyers this week after I asked the question. They said, no, there's no chance for any kind of federal intervention on this. We just have to trust that Abbott and his administration will take care of it going forward. The other thing about the El Paso ISD, and that was a completely different thing. They had a cheating scandal out there. You might remember that from about a decade ago. Huge deal. Uh, I think it took them five or six years for the El Paso ISD to go back to where they would you know, elect their school board locally again and and try to move forward. But people out there say the El Paso ISD is still kind of a mess. And so I don't know that it, again, you have Dutton's concerns that are valid, but to point to a state takeover as the answer for it, maybe isn't the right thing. And this is really opposed at the local level, Jeremy, where you have uh, Mayor Sylvester Turner saying this is not the right way to do this. Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee saying the same thing. Uh, others saying the same thing. Uh, in the, in that community, Senator John Whitmire, uh, who's a senior member of the of the Senate, saying this is not the right thing. I heard from people who have a stake in the education of kids in Houston saying over and over again, this is not the right thing. But Jeremy, it is what's happening.
1: Yeah and it's 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 such a slow motion reaction. I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, the the previous school board uh at HISD, there were all kinds of issues there. The Houston Chronicle we've done a lot to, you know, talk about, you know, some of the uh the open meeting, you know, violations that they had there, some of the corruption that was going on there. But again, those people have been cleared out largely. And it's like that board is clearly functioning better than it was back then. And so when I was kind of thinking about this, it's almost as if like, you know, they started something, you know, for sure in 2019, at least, right. You know, it was before that, but really in 2019, this really kind of gets moving. Yeah. Uh, and, but there were so many court challenges and obviously the pandemic happened, lots of stuff happened in between, but so now they're finally getting to do it. Right. But this is kind of like drawing up a really good defense For the team you were playing four years ago. Like, this is like a great defense for Tim Duncan in the San Antonio Spurs. But guess what? They're not even there anymore. Tim Duncan's retired. Like you've created a plan now to fix a problem that isn't really kind of the same problem that it was. And so it's and, and I wonder how much of this goes back to 2019. You'll remember Governor Abbott got really into the middle of this, you know, where he ended up saying, like, that you know, he had a a, a tweet back then that like I still remember to this day, where he called HISD leadership a joke and a disaster. And yep. then he says, if ever there was a school board that needs to be taken over and reformed, it's HISD. Well, mm-hmm. guess who appoints the head of TEA? Greg Abbott. You know, right. so they're clearly on, you know, uh, under orders at that point, right? To kind of like make this happen, right? Uh, and so they went along that process, even if things were changing along the way. It's like they still have a governor who has put this you know this ball moving and it's like how do you Mm. unmove it at that point based on the stuff that he had said that's pretty strong language to be able to say oh yeah everything's okay now you know well you know how do you walk that back and i don't think he's he can walk that back and i think that's what we're seeing the political result now of something that was more of a problem probably you know four years ago
0: Yeah. And this also speaks to a larger political dynamic now in the state. If if you're not in Houston, you may say, hey, why does this matter to me? Well, let us help you with that. So Jeremy, you had written about the fact that if you wanted to pass a school voucher program in the state, this is essentially part of what you wrote. It, it, It basically is this, the best backdrop you could possibly have for that effort is to have the largest school district in the state, being accused of being a low, low performing, failing school district, failing the kids who are in the quote unquote inner city, and the governor said that that's not true at all. Right. What 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 was this? There was a, a press conference about something else. Right.
1: Yeah, it was a, a completely unrelated press conference. You know, about the future of you know semiconductor computing things. You know, they're doing in the state of Texas mm-hmm. to bring that industry here. Uh, but you know, at the at during this meeting, he was asked specifically as like about HISD, what was happening there, what his thoughts were.
0: Yeah, and here's what he said. That we're going to be
4: providing the best quality education for those kids uh, as well as uh, to ensure uh, that some of the, uh, let's let's say, uh, malfeasance or uh, the the problems that existed uh, in the board uh, will be eliminated. But notice when I I, I talk about what we're going to be doing going forward, some people have suggested uh, that we're going to use this uh, for uh, parental empowerment, things like that. All that is completely separate. Uh, from what's happening with a- HISD. Uh, th- this is going to be done in, in a way uh, that just ensures uh, that it will be set on a course so that HISD will no longer be failing their students.
0: There's an old axiom in Texas politics, Jeremy. It goes something like this. Uh, never attribute that to coincidence that that can be easily attributed to conspiracy. So you have, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I will say, if again, if you want to try to get your parental empowerment and school voucher education savings account, uh, you know, passed through the legislature, one of the best things that you could have happen in the middle of a legislative session. So why are they doing this right now? In the middle of a legislative session, you would have the biggest school district in the state be taken over, or the announcement that it's going to be takeover come out. Uh, as you still have so many lawmakers who are hesitant to go along with your plans to reform the way that we do public education in Texas.
1: Yeah. And and, in my story, one of the things I tried to kind of hit on, you know, Governor Abbott saying he, these things aren't related, but given where we are, it is complete it is clear that this HISD takeover is caught up in not just the voucher stuff and the trying to root out CRT in our schools right. but also in this ongoing feud with Houston over everything you know think about all the fights about you know you know crime judicial reform uh, education you know, education elections you know it's all in this box so the governor wants to separate these things, but for people back in Houston, particularly in Harris County, what they're seeing is both an extension of these election reforms that he's doing. I'm using mm-hmm. reforms. That's his word. Obviously, uh-huh. so a lot of people disagree with that You're terminology. Being nice. uh, and, but so it's caught up with the election reform uh, or the, uh, the education reforms he's already doing and this ongoing constant battle that... Texas Republicans have going on with Houston and Harris County. It's hard to separate those things. That's all in that story because, like, I think it's a fair point. It's like if you if you're a parent of a kid at HISD, you're thinking this is this about the vouchers and is this about them just really being mad at Lena Heldago, the county judge, and Sylvester Turner, the Houston mayor. It's like you know, it's hard to say. Like, you know, no, it has nothing to do with either one of those. But like you mentioned. We're not seeing this happen in Dallas. No. Like yeah, you haven't heard them do this anywhere in Bexar County. You know, it's like there's there's a reason that Houston and Harris County comes up every stinking time. You know, they're losing those other counties too, but there's mm-hmm. something particular about Harris County, the Houston Independent School District that is much more of a target for the leadership of the Texas Republicans than again whatever's happening in Dallas, El Paso, San Antonio, Laredo, name your place. It's like yeah. why is this the target?
0: Here's my theory on that. I here here here's what it is. And and because it's the right question to ask. Why don't they go nuts about Dallas? Very democratic, right? Why not Bear County? Why not Travis County? They it used to be Travis County. When, when this was when when Travis County was the only county, I remember Rick Perry used to joke that it was the blueberry and the tomato soup, yeah. which I thought that was kind of a strange thing to say. <laughs> but uh, not for but Rick he and I—that is not well, strange
1: for Rick Perry, though. <laughs> he
0: and I are both—he, he and I are both country boys, so we would both get the joke that uh, jokes about uh, the fact that each what was it something about tomcats? Everyone had their own tomcat, and then he, <laughs> and then he would say, "Some of you will get that." <laughs> <laughs> he would try to tell he would try to tell a joke about Tomcats uh to a room of rich people in New Hampshire and wonder why nobody's laughing but anyway um here's my theory on Harris county. It's different from a place like Dallas, which went very democratic as early as two thousand what two thousand six right two thousand six two thousand and eight when you had every judge in Dallas county became democratic and they, it used to be Republicans. It was Republican leadership in Dallas County for a long time. Then they had a sweep. You know, you're going back to the Obama, you know, the o- Obama and pre-Obama era when things were just changing in Dallas County. And Bear County, of course, has been more Democratic-leaning for a lot longer than Harris County, that's for sure. So in a lot of ways, it's kind of already long gone for Republicans. Um, I think the difference in Harris County is that they still haven't, the Republican leadership still hasn't given up on the idea that they at least need to be competitive in Houston and in the Houston area. And Harris County, because of its geographic size, isn't just the city of Houston. It's got all these suburbs as well, right? It's not like Dallas County doesn't have that. Dallas County is basically Dallas and tiny little cities around it. And that's it. Not you don't really get into the suburbs until you get into Collin County, which is Republican, but changing and Denton County is Republican essentially, but changing, right? And some of these other places, Tarrant County, still very Republican in a lot of ways, but it's got, you know, Democrats making up some ground there as well. But in Houston, it's so rich with votes. There are so many people there. Um, And if they let, if they let Harris County get completely out of reach for them, which it's not really, I mean, Democrats are now dominating there, but there's still a lot of Republicans in Houston and Harris County. Right, I mean, if you get outside the, you get outside of the, uh, of Beltway Eight, you know, into those communities, and you get out toward Fort Bend County, and you get out toward Waller County, you get out toward Montgomery County, it's a lot of Republicans, right? I mean, think about some of the most conservative lawmakers are from Harris County, right? Briscoe Kane, Tom Oliverson, these are, I mean, we talk so much about how Democratic Houston is, but some of the state representatives from Harris County and their districts are wholly contained within Harris County. They're the ones who want to punish women and say that they can't leave the state to get an abortion. Right? These are very conservative people. right? So I think that the main point is I think that the uh, Republican leadership still sees Houston as a battleground, and they need it to be a battleground going forward in elections whenever some of these contests might get closer statewide. They can't just have Harris County be one big Democratic place. That won't work.
1: And I'll give you this thought, reader, or listeners. Uh, if you think about where did Governor Greg Abbott begin his judicial career, where did Ted Cruz come from, and where did uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick mm-hmm. start his political career? Yeah, The answer to all three of those is Harris County. They all right. won Harris County, and now they are all losing it badly. It's like it's not close. It's like they're getting clobbered there. And I can't imagine that isn't part of what this equation is. It's a little mm-hmm. bit more personal for them yep. than maybe some something going on in Travis County or in San Antonio. You know, you, you never hear them take on Nelson Wolf <laughs> in Bear County, right? Nobody's ever saying anything bad about him. You know, it's like it's like you know, not that I'm not suggesting they should. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to put him in the target here, but but it's well, he's it's, done it's, now.
0: They don't tell you here's to bolster, <laughs> po- to bolster your point to bolster your point. You're not even thinking about the fact that he's not the county judge anymore because they never talk about him.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a different guy now. Judge exactly, Sakai. exactly. They let they him never talk about That's it. They,
0: that, that's the point. They never even talk about the judge now, Peter Sakai, in yeah. Bear County, right? I'm sure he's just as much a liberal Democrat as these other people that they're talking about. Um, you heard Abbott say that this has nothing to do with his school empowerment – school empowerment. He ain't about empowering schools when he talks about this stuff. His parental empowerment stuff and his school voucher stuff, he says the HISD deal, it has nothing to do with any of that. And of course, Abbott's always been truthful. His administration's always been truthful in this push for vouchers. Remember, he's the one who says that schools will be, quote, fully funded even if his voucher program passes. But you remember, his deputy commissioner for education was caught on tape telling the mother of a special needs child that well, no. Actually, vouchers will absolutely mean fewer resources for children in Texas public schools. Your concerns are correct, and like this is largely like the, those are the anti-voucher like talking points, which they did a really good job of. Like, yes, they have. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. But so, so, in like Texas, wouldn't be the first state to do this, right? Right. Like this isn't a new idea. This is happening uh, in many states across the country, and what the research is showing. Is that, like, yes, traditional public school districts are getting less money, but there are no like detrimental impacts
2: on actual like, student learning mm-hmm. that are associated with that, uh, that money, right? So school districts, what they have to do is just like be smart about, um, like if they lose students, be smart about how they allocate their resources and like, um, right, like maybe that's one less fourth grade teacher.
0: And as I've pointed out before, it's one less teacher for all the kids who are still there. After, so, after maybe some of the kids are able to leave and go to a private school, it was pointed out in some coverage this week, Jeremy, that for all of the private schools that Governor Abbott has held his school voucher events at, as he's, you know, he's been on the road with this school voucher roadshow, all of them have high school tuition that is at least about eleven thousand dollars, something like that. And since we last talked, the Texas Senate has put forward its school voucher proposal. And even some of the – and this is where this stuff always breaks down. Even some of the far-right activists hate the Senate's proposal because it offers money to school districts that lose kids to private education. So in the bill that was filed by the Senate Education Chairman, Brandon Creighton, if a kid leaves a rural school – and they get an $8,000 voucher. And remember what we've been talking about as far as how much the voucher would be, we had assumed it would be more like what the basic allotment is, which is around $6,000 right now. The Senate obviously heard us, and they said, well, it needs to be bigger than that. So they so they said, well, let's make it $8,000. And what have we said here over and over again? Well, these tuitions are more like $13,000, dollars $15,000. Depending on what school you're talking about, you can get up to tuition that's around $20,000. If you're talking St. John's in Houston, that, that, and someone said, that's not fair to to say St. John's. Although I keep telling these people, if your real argument is that you want the kids to go to the absolute best school, then the voucher needs to be $30,000, which is what it is for St. John's, which was the scene of the great movie Rushmore, which I love, right? So awesome. You know that one, Brandon, you know that movie? It's so good. He gave me the big thumbs up. Um, almost nobody can afford to go to St. John's in Houston, right? And they wouldn't be able to go there with $8,000. And I think the point that you made on the last show, Jeremy, about this being a coupon, I've heard that resonate with people. People have said, yeah, I'm I'm, now I'm going to call it a coupon because it makes perfect sense. If I can already kind of afford to send my kid to a private school and I can get a discount at $8,000. Well, great. That's perfect. Now they tried to, you know, they try to address that as well by saying that, oh, this will only be for students that aren't aren't already in private schools. Well, you know what about the children of wealthy kids who just haven't been enrolled yet? They'll get the eight thousand dollar voucher, right? So, so going forward, I can see it only being a benefit for wealthy people. I had the Republican Party of Texas chairman Matt Rinaldi, who we have you know disagreed a lot more than Chairman Dutton and I. <laughs> um, Matt Rinaldi said to me, "Well, hey." What about those families that once you you know broke it up over the you know over, over the course of 12 months that it would only cost them, you know once you factor in the voucher, it would only cost them about four hundred dollars a month to be able to send their kid to some of these private schools? I'm thinking, okay, you're still not getting the point here, which is when you say this is for underprivileged children who are trapped in failing schools, those families don't have four hundred dollars a month sitting around, right? These are families that are lucky to make it paycheck to paycheck. You're not really helping. Who you say you're helping. You're creating a coupon for rich people. Uh, and in the meantime, the Abbott administration is on record because of that leaked audio saying that it'll mean less re- resources for public education. And one other thing when the Senate bill proposes to give money to rural districts that lose students to private schools, it's a ruse. In the rural districts, there's still not going to be any private schools for them to go to. That's not how they end up economically hurt. They get economically hurt because the $8,000 per kid comes out of the pot of money that is meant for all districts all across the state. right? So the overall amount of money for public ed in Texas will be reduced for these coupons in the big cities, and the Senate bill doesn't fix that.
1: Well, and even if you take that coupon and go to your local private school to go, you know, uh, enroll your kid, here's the thing: private schools don't have to take you. They have different rules, right? And so, you know, I've watched this happen in other, you know, private school settings too, uh, where uh, the single parent who's not able to, you know, volunteer enough time compared to all of the other, you know, kids who have two parents. They can be rejected and turned away from their school because they're not putting enough time in. And it's like, and so the, the private schools have a lot more authority to say, no, we don't want you here." And it's like and you know, who knows what goes in that de- decision making? you know It's like how will they you know, take a kid you know from you know, a socially economically poor area of Houston or San Antonio or wherever? It's like, mm-hmm. will they take that kid? There's no assurance. so what happens if you take that voucher or coupon you know send it over to the private school and the private school says, sorry, we don't want Johnny here you know he's kind of a bad apple you know you'll have to go somewhere else. now what happens to your money? your, your money's now been taken out of the you know, public school system and sent to the private school. are you mm-hmm. going to be able to go back over to the public school or is your money now in transit somewhere?' It's like these are all kind of questions I hope if anybody who's in the legislative process is listening to, You probably want to address this because Florida had these problems. I really looked at Florida as this model, but Florida has had these problems and struggled with them as, you know, kids who, you know, the underprivileged kids who needed better schooling were all of a sudden bad apples and were getting kicked out of schools. And then the money was like, well, we can't even take you back in the public school system because you're not funded anymore, kid. Sorry. You know, it's like that puts strain on the whole system. So there's a lot more to this issue. Oh, and keep an eye out this next week. You know, Abbott's doing another one of his tours of private schools. Going to Houston, I'll be there. I'll I'll report back on what I hear.
0: Yeah, I want to know how that goes, and I'm sure it will be in your new, newly uh, remade newsletter with the same name as the show. Right? Tell us about the newsletter, the Texas Take. Yeah, we're, we're, we're putting we're putting
1: we're putting our media empire together here. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah, think of the word cohesion. Yeah, we're, we're trying to we're trying to work on this word cohesion. Where you know, since we've been yeah. telling you about the Texas Take newsletter all these years, and there's the Texas Take podcast. Obviously, I thought, well, why don't we bring these things together a little bit more, and make them sound like each other, and mm-hmm. so we're going to make the Texas Take newsletter sound a lot more like. You know What we're doing here today. So, yeah, if you look at the Tech Stake podcast now, what I'm trying to do is try to give people a little bit of, uh, of a flair of kind of, you know, not only what we're talking about here, but also kind of a little head start on the next day and mm-hmm. things that are coming down the pike. You, you, heard, you were reading about the HISD takeover, you know, in our newsletter on Tuesday before it happened. You know, you were reading about DEI, you know, in this next step on DEI before it happened on Thursday. It's like you will get ahead of the game. You know, you'll know a little bit more. You'll be you'll be a hit around the water cooler when you go, hey, I think this is going to happen tomorrow. And boom, you're going to be right.
0: <laughs> well, they can sign up at uh, Houston dot com, I assume.
1: Yes, at houstonchronicle.com, uh, at expressnews.com, and on my Twitter I have a link to it. Uh, so you can go there. You don't have to subscribe to the, either one of those newspapers, uh, although you should. Why wouldn't you? But, you know, even if you're not in those areas and you you know, you can, you know, track the newsletter. It's gonna yeah. be pretty statewide. I'm gonna have stuff in there from all over the place. I had an item in there about Fort Hood, had an item about the you know, the Rio Grande Valley this week, you know, mm-hmm. all things you kinda wanna keep an eye on.
0: Well, I think it's well worth your time you know here's here's my suggestion, Jeremy. The link for the newsletter you should make that your pinned tweet so people can Good go idea. find it you do You do that, and i 'll tell people to go check you out at jeremy s Wallace A um, couple more things here, one happy and one not so happy at all. Uh, the first is uh, this is a point of personal privilege, Jeremy. I would like to say hello to our newest listener in Houston. Uh, Lucas Joe Spiegel was born at about 11 o'clock last night, uh, seven pounds, eight ounces. Uh, his, uh, mom, Aaron is doing great. He and he, uh, he and mom are both doing great. And, uh, his dad, Scotty was probably up all night chain smoking. (laughs) That that is my guess, (laughs) but Mazel Tov guys. Um, can't wait to meet, uh, to meet Lucas. Um, the other thing is this and you reminded me about it uh, earlier this week uh, it was Uvalde County Day at the Texas Capitol. and you know the county days are supposed to just be fun recognitions of you know our great communities all across the state if it's Washington County Day you know members you'll hear the state representative from from Washington County on the on the microphone saying you know we've got bluebell and we've got blue bonnets we are the birthplace of Texas in Washington County Washington on the Brazos. Did you know that the reason they called it Washington on the Brazos was because at that time there were two Washingtons. Was Washington on the Brazos and Washington on the Potomac, right? Our nation's capital. If you think about Nueces County Day, what's Nueces County Day? So we've got, you know, fun on the beach. We've got, you know, great restaurants. We've got the Selena statue. Come check us out in Corpus, you know, Nueces County Day. But Uvalde County Day now has a very different feel to it, a very different meaning, right? And uh, the state senator for the area is, as you know, Roland Gutierrez, uh, who on the floor of the Texas Senate this week, he took the time, and I think it's important, and you do have this as your pin tweet still, I think right now, Jeremy, is the, the faces of the people who were slaughtered that day in Uvalde. And as he as he lists the names, I want you to think about where you were when you heard the, first heard the news. What emotions ran through you on the day that that happened. Um, and you really feel the weight of it as you listen to all of the names of the teachers and those babies who were gunned down mercilessly at one of our public schools in this state.
5: Before I close... Today, Mr. President, I do just want to remember. If we, if you would indulge me, in just remembering the names of the most people, important people uh, in Uvalde, and that starts with Uziah Garcia, the little boy who lost his life. Rogelio Torres, Miranda Mathis, Alicia Ramirez, Aveya Bravo, Eliana Torres. Layla Salazar, Annabelle Rodriguez, Jason Luevanos, Ileana Garcia, Tess Mata, Maitha Rodriguez, Jayla Silguero, Amarillo Garza, Ken Rod, Irma Garcia, Alexandria, Lexi Rubio, Eva Mireles, Xavier Lopez, Jacqueline Cosadis, and Jose Flores.
0: Jeremy, I know you had some thoughts about this uh, as you saw it play out live on the Senate floor.
1: Yeah, I totally could feel. You know, I'm stealing this from Willie Nelson, I know, but it's, mm-hmm. it, it's, this is clearly something you know we're not going to get over. But we'll get through it somehow, right? You know, but like, and I like the fact that Senator Gutierrez was there to remind us all that we're not supposed to get over this. Like, we're not supposed to accept this as just a day in Texas. No, just no.
0: Well, I would offer this. When the news first hit, and in the days and weeks and months after the shooting. We saw so much attention on this. We had the governor of Texas uh, there pretty quickly, uh, although he did take a little detour. I won't go back into that right now. Uh, He he was there pretty quickly. You saw the clash between Abbott and his Democratic challenger, Beto O'Rourke, that happened there at the auditorium in Uvalde. You had one of the sons of Uvalde, Uh, One of the most famous people on the planet, Matthew McConaughey, bang his fist on the podium at the White House saying, we need to do something about this. We need to take action. He was very emotional when he talked about the fact that one of the young girls could not be identified except that they knew she was the girl who wore the green shoes with the red heart that she had drawn on the toes of one of the shoes not that much has been done in the meantime. And when you have a group of people who are the victims or the families of victims in a situation, it's very difficult for them to in some ways re-enter normal life and to once again, be productive people because they're so it's all consuming. You know, when you have something like that happen, losing a child is not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to bury your children. It's supposed to be the other way around, right? The circle, the cycle of life, is that children bury their parents when they get older. And that's sad enough. The other way around is unbearable, right? It's unbelievable. I still follow these people on social media, some of the mothers and fathers who talk about it every day. But, you know, there are people who had followed along with the stories of these folks who have stopped listening to them, who just don't care what they have to say anymore. And it's not because they don't care about them and it's not because they don't have any empathy. It's because other things come up. Life moves on at some point, life moves on and other priorities take, you know, take hold and you, you start to focus on those other things instead. Uh, but I do think it's important that people hold our policymakers to account. I do think it's important to give people credit where it's due you have – there's some people who won't like this. I will give credit to Tony Gonzalez and to John Cornyn, Republican leadership who suffered some consequence for taking a stand on this, so even moving the needle some, just a little bit on gun policy in the state. You and I were there at the Republican convention in Houston, which it's unbelievable to me to think about the fact that John Cornyn, who <laughs> – is the elder statesman of the Republican Party in Texas was nearly booed off the stage for simply trying to offer funds to states that have red flag laws, not even telling the states they have to have them, right? It's just kind of barely moving the needle. Uh, Tony Gonzalez, who voted for that bill as well, being censured by the Republican Party of Texas for taking that stand. Um, and, and he's the guy He's the guy in Congress who represents Uvaldi. Right? Our politics are so coarse, our politics are so nasty. I mean, even if the Republican party of Texas doesn't agree with Tony Gonzalez on moving the ball a little bit, moving the needle a little bit on on gun policy, they could at least have the decency to say, this is the guy who represents the area. Cut him some slack about that. We don't agree with him, but cut him some slack. Maybe he needs to do something different from what you would do if you were in his shoes. But I do think that taking the time to think about those families, to think about the fact that It is their reality every day. For all of us, that was last year. For all of us, that was a long time ago. And as you have said previously, Jeremy, for those families, what unfolded that day, the tragedy of not knowing, the moments of of not knowing if it was their kid who was killed. They think about that all the time. And then getting the confirmation that it was their kid who was killed. They wake up every day with that as their reality.
1: Yeah, and and that's not you know, and this really hit home recently cuz I spoke to some of the the children from Uvalde who survived that day. Mm-hmm. The horror that they have and like thinking about their friends that are gone. It takes a while for that to set in for a kid. Uh, but again these are fourth graders. These were fourth graders. You know, like we're not talking You know, you can barely, you're, you're just, you're just finally starting to understand basics of life for Pete's sake. Right. And then you've said goodbye to 19 people, your age forever with no closure. You can't reach out to them. Like somebody, somebody's best friend's gone, you know, like their cousins are gone. Their nieces are gone. You know, it's like, everybody's like, I don't, it's just, it's too hard to kind of deal with. But I think it's just super important for us to at least show the compassion and uh, and try to understand what these families are going through, and just offer whatever we can in terms of you know any sort of support. You know, because this is not normal. This is not. This is just not right.
0: It's not okay. And uh, Brandon, I'm going to do something a little bit different here at the end of the show. I'm going to ask that we just end with silence here. I don't want to hear the music or anything. I just want people to go into their weekend. I want you to, I want you to hug your loved ones. I want you to think about the fact that the, th- the the things that you've done for your whole life to try to build up to build up a life to have to have the relationships you have to have the the children that you have to have the friendships that you have. All of it can end just like that. And when nobody does anything about it, you should do everything you can, everything in your power to reach out to those around you and make a difference. I've watched those families act in heroic ways, Jeremy. I've watched those families act in ways that I never ever would have expected. I've seen them get involved in Texas politics in a way that I never saw victims' families do before. And here's the thing. You don't you don't always fight a fight because you're going to win. If, if, if it was, you would just, you you know, <laughs> there'd be a lot less fights, right? You You fight because it's right. And I'll leave you with this. You should always do your best. And sometimes your best isn't going to be good enough, but that's not an excuse
3: to not do it. We will see you next time.